Hey, everybody. Welcome to ATD Greater Atlanta's web series, Building Our Vision. Uh, 2020 has had a huge impact on our on our daily lives. And I personally am trying to figure out what exactly happened. Um, and who better to ask about workplace changes than Ed Musio, author of the book Iterate, run a fast, flexible, focused management team, and the CEO of Group Harmonics. Uh, thank you so much, Ed. Um, I'm so grateful that you, that you came on our show today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and, and do the next best thing to the conference we were going to do. So this is great. Exactly. We could not let this amazing content go to waste. So we, ne we need to get this out to the people for sure. Um, so let's kind of just dive into it. Um, I know. So I've been doing a little bit of research on you. We, I, I kind of need a <laughs> um, thorough background check. But uh, so I heard that you were an, an engineer originally, um, and then you got into management consulting and writing books and stuff. So how did you make that transition? It's true. I am a recovered engineer, I guess you'd call it. Um, and depending <laughs> on who I talk to, I either emphasize that or don't. But yeah, you know, it, it felt sort of natural. I mean, this sounds weird. And of course, everyone tells you in retrospect, you know, my career felt natural. But but I was always kind of the engineer in the room who was looking at kind of how the authority structure works and, you know, how decisions get made and how the system is working on the people side. So I feel like I was doing that when I was an engineer too. And so the transition was kind of natural. I just kind of more and more of my career focused on that side of things. What kind of, what kind of engineering, what, what kind of engineer were you? My background was mechanical engineering, but at the time I actually started working for Intel and I, I worked for about a decade at Intel doing microchip manufacturing and microchip processors kind of stuff. And so it wasn't really mechy, but it was at that time, there was no degree in that. So they just hired us and taught us when we got there kind of thing. Yeah. And then what interested you about the people side of things? Like I said, I don't know that, I mean, I, I took one psych class in college and I liked that, but, but really I didn't notice it until I was a couple of years into the engineering group. And like I said, I was just always the one they would sort of look to and, you know, help us organize this or help us facilitate this or whatever. So it was kind of a, a naturally emergent sort of preference or skill or, you know, liking, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then, okay. So you went from engineer and then into, you know, the people side of things and how did you decide to kind of become an author, uh, a thought leader, you know, like what? <laughs> What drew, what drove you, you know, to, to, to that side of the business? You know, I, I've been accused of being a thought leader. And I always take it as a compliment. Um, I, I never did sit down and oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I never did sit down and say, you know, thought leader is my goal. And I, I never really read a book that said how to be a thought leader. I, I think, again, you know, as I got deeper into this stuff and started to learn and, and kind of adapt models and things, you know, and I found that I had people out there wanted to hear it and see it and, and work with it. You know, I think that's sort of, I guess, a natural outcome of that is you end up with something like a following, although I sort of think of it as a bunch of friends of mine that I'm talking to all the time, you know, as much <laughs> as I can. Um, so yeah, I think it was, I think it was again, kind of organic and, and, you know, I still, I still kind of, it's like when someone calls me Mr. Musio, I'm like, who are, who are they talking to? You know? <laughs> um, so is, is that kind of how you started? You were just talking to a lot of people, developing theories and models on your own, and then you decided to kind of put it in book form or video form. Um, well, I had a, a mentor. So, so it was actually more like I was solving problems, you know, the engineer thing. So, so groups were having an issue and I helped them solve it. And then it was like, if you do the same thing a couple of times, you start to realize, hey, there's a model behind this. Let's see if we can find it. Right. And so it was very pragmatic. Um, and then I ended up aligned with a guy that I met when I was at Intel named Bill Daniels. And he became a, a mentor and a friend to me. He, he and his wife are now honorary grandparents of my child. Um, but, wow. but he had done for, you know, 30 years, similar work. And so for a while we kind of collaborated on our different pieces of it. And then eventually he 
transitioned his business to me at one retirement. And so I took his content and put it together. So it kind of, you know, it was kind of, you know, the iterate thing, every step made sense at the time. And this is the cumulative effect, but yeah. I did not sit down, you know, in whatever year and go, I'm going to do this and work for this person. <laughs> like it was nothing like that. It just kind of has evolved to this really clear set of tools that seems to me to need that nobody has around. How do I run a team of managers in a way that's not cumbersome? Yeah. What format do you prefer? Do you prefer videos? Um, I know you're the whiteboard guy, right? Like you like to make videos of you writing things up on the whiteboard. So do you prefer the video format? Do you prefer, you know, writing books, um, in-person talks, kind of like what's, what's your preference? You know, I, all of it has advantages. I, I you said I like white, making whiteboard videos. I, I think I like being finished making whiteboard videos is probably more accurate, but, um, but that, that has worked really well for sort of a certain size piece of information where you can explain it really clearly. Um, and that was some good coaching I got from someone named Marianne years ago, um, who was working for CBS at the time kind of thing. And I did some stuff with them. Um, the, the, you know, the, the live teaching has definite advantages. Um, what I'm really into right now is, you know, so I have sort of the do it yourself content by the book, watch the videos. I have the training programs, some are live, some are virtual. There's pros and cons to that. But, but also we're doing some really sophisticated um, management intervention stuff now. So I'll actually work with a CEO and two layers of staff all at once. And some of that is better live. Some of it's actually better virtual. It's really up to what they're doing though. I kind of meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so through a sort of a mix of what I would call interventional conversations, very small sort of, hey, try this kind of conversations. And then some bigger training things with the bigger groups, we can actually move the culture of an organization in a couple months um, and move it substantially. And that's pretty cutting edge. I don't know anybody else who's doing that right now in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, that's becoming sort of a favorite mode, but it's actually kind of a blend of all the modes. Cause I think you have to use the mode that kind of makes the most sense, which I guess is true. Yeah. Right? Customization. I think that's yeah. the, yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk 2020. Uh, <laughs> let's talk 2020. How have things changed for you personally, um, in your work life, as well as in your personal life, have you done anything, you know, different in 2020 that you didn't see yourself doing, um, has some has anything worked and then have things not worked for you? Well, I haven't gotten on a plane since March, which I think the last time I went this long without getting on a plane, I might have been in college. I don't know. <laughs> um, but but I'm you know, I'm not a I'm not a huge road warrior like guys that I know that are four days a week every week, but but I'm definitely on a plane every couple of weeks, you know, and, and yeah. it's sort of it's it's been really nice. I have an eight-year-old and I see a lot more of him now and I like that. Um, some of the stuff that's worked really well, like, like, so some of the interventional work I do has to do with observing meetings and the model pre Corona was I would call into someone's live meeting three times because they were not in the town I was in. And then Mm -hmm. once a month, I would have to fly there to watch it because you can't get a lot of information listening to a meeting when they're all in a room and you're on the phone or on a a zoom. Right. Right. Well, when those meetings went virtual and everybody had a camera on them, all of a sudden my observations got better because I could watch all of them and I didn't need to fly there. And I could, so, so I could do, you know, two observations a month and get more information than I was out of, you know, four a month before Uh, that's been kind of good. You know, there's other stuff that, you know, we're, we're fooling with different modalities for simulations. Like I have some simulations I can do in webinars and things now that I'm developing. Mm -hmm. You learn as you go. I I don't think, you know, all my clients have been doing virtual work for a long time. So I've been doing both for a long time. So I don't think one's better than the other. I think, when people say, oh, it's all going to be virtual from now on, I kind of go, yeah, we said that once already didn't happen that way, you know, and, and yet also there's some value in it. So I think it's just a balanced thing. Yeah. Do, do people act differently in virtual meetings than they do in in-person meetings from what you observed? I think you get a more, a slightly, well, I don't know if that's still true. I, I would have said before you get a more formal view on them, right? Like you get the mm-hmm. only, it's only what's in the square. I mean, who knows what's over there, right? I could have a, a yeah. fire over there, but it doesn't matter. It's all in the square. Um, 
but I do think people are a little more, at least initially, were a little more sort of conscientious about kind of how they presented themselves and things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like anything else, now that you're in a Zoom eight hours a day, you know, you see like munching on snacks or whatever is part of it, because yeah. I just think it's sort of like the office. It's like your first week versus your second year. You know, it's like I live here now, you know, so I, I think right. it's changing a little bit, but it does, it does substantially shift. And there are articles about this, the, the nonverbals, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not natural to know you're on camera all the time. You get too much eye contact. I'm looking at you now. Like it feels yes. like eye contact. Like that's yeah. more eye contact <laughs> than you would get if I were with you, you know? Yeah. So those kind of things are, are I think, different. And I think we're still adjusting. And I'm not sure we really know what, what's up yet. There's a lot of people saying we know what's up, but I think we're still figuring it out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I personally, you know, I mean, my pets are walking through the camera, like people's children are crying on the foot, you know, like it's it's definitely a view into people's home lives too, um, which has been cool. I don't know. <laughs> the acceptability of having a kid show up or a pet or something. I've, I've personally enjoyed that. Um, I do think it's a big shift though. And I think it's been sort of shocking, especially if you take the people that weren't doing a lot of virtual work before and, yes. and all of a sudden they're doing it so much. It's a big, it's a big change. It's a big hill to climb. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I think it also presents some barriers for people, you know, who aren't used to doing things from home virtually. Like if, you know, if they don't have good internet or if they don't have a good setup and things like that, like it might make them, I don't know how that affects performance. You know, like, do you, does your manager think that you're doing a worse job at your work if you don't have a good, like, you know, setup, I guess, does it make you look unprofessional? I'm not sure. I guess these are all questions that we're going to have to figure out. <laughs> well, and so much of this has been luck of the draw. I mean, it's sort of like, what kind of home office did you have before? And were you a person who lived in an urban scenario with a small space because you went out a lot or a person in a, you know, a more sort of suburban setup with a full room for an office? And, you know, were you right. working in a field where it got busier or did you lose your job? There's so much that was just luck of the draw here. And mm-hmm. it'll take a long time to sort all that out, I think. Definitely. So this is your book, Iterate, uh, Run a Fast, Flexible, Focused Management Team. Um, can you give me just a quick little summary about how, um, like, what's what's the premise of the book, basically? The basic concept of Iterate is there's a couple different ways you can manage an organization. And the way most organizations do it, we think about 80%, is what I call the North American management model, which is the way you've learned by watching other managers do it as you were a worker before that. And, and that one is something like this. We set a plan in January, um, and good management looks like holding people accountable to get their stuff done so we execute the plan. And then in December, we check how we did. Um, and then if we admit there's a lot of change, we might check in in July and make adjustments or whatever. But really, um, meetings are for statusing. And um, you know, one-on-ones with managers are for asking for more. And the, the system kind of plods along trying to execute this plan that was made up. Uh, by contrast, iterative management, which is my term for it, and, and what we think is going on in about 20% of what are the highest performing organizations looks more like um, take a step, learn from it, and then take another step based on that. And so I always use the metaphor of walking to the car, you know, walking to your car across a crowded parking lot where you're like, you look out over the parking lot and you think you know where the car is and you look at your watch and you figure I got to get there in about, you know, two minutes. And so you start walking. And so as you're walking, you've got, you know, the executive office up here that said, get to the car in two minutes. And then you've got the feet, which is the workforce, and they're carrying out the, the execution of the, of the plan, right? But as that's happening, there's things about the surface that require the feet to do things. The muscles make different decisions and, and just, and that's without executive intervention. And then also they're using a resource, which is blood oxygen. And if things are too difficult, they have to call for more. And so first they'll escalate to middle management. We'll call that the cardiovascular system. And they'll say, send down more and maybe it can, or maybe it's too much and it further escalates. And then you get this message up in your brain that says, you know, breathe a little harder, start going to the gym more, something like that. And so you take care of that. Uh, at the same time, in the executive office, you're looking out at where you're going further out. 
and you're seeing that, oh, that's not my car or, hey, there's, a, there's something there I can't get around. I have to change direction. And so you have information that's feeding up and decisions getting made and information that's feeding down and decisions getting made. And all of that very complex system that is your body is doing a very simple thing, which is it's taking exactly one step, which is the best next step from where you are given everything you know. And then it's incorporating everything you've learned in that step. Like, oh, I got a little closer. That's not my car. And that gets incorporated before the next step. So you didn't plan out your steps at the beginning of the walk. You take each step from where you are. When management figures out how to do that and how to play that role for the organization, then the organization gets a lot more nimble and adaptable. Stress levels go down, output goes up, and, and you know it becomes less important in December to argue why we're off plan and more important every single day of the week to say, what do we do right now? What's the best adjustment we can make to stay on course? That's really what the book's about. And it's in the context of running a team of managers because managers managing managers is where a lot of that kind of resource trade and decisions happen all the way up to the top level executives. Yeah, so that's a great concept. I've definitely been part of teams where the manager has said, okay, we're in July right now. This is where we're getting to December, but then we don't talk anywhere between July and December about how have things changed and how, you know, what do we need to, how do we adjust and things like that. So I feel like your book really addresses what kinds of communication needs to happen between teams in order to, you know, like what pieces of information does everybody need um, to make those decisions and kind of, you know, create those, uh, make those adjustments and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, can we can, let's let's talk a little bit more about that kind of communication? Um, one thing that I really really loved about the book was uh, you really lay out kind of um, what needs to happen during meetings. Um, I feel like meetings are sometimes can be such a wasted space uh, during in your day, you know. And it's like you're just sitting there, and and I, in the book you talk about, or maybe it was an interview you say like, okay, mo people are just most of the time um, just sitting around trying to impress other people with, you know, what they've done and, um, trying to make themselves look good in front of their boss and stuff like that. Whereas we really should be giving a whole other set of information, um, in order to make better decisions. Um, so maybe can you walk us through a little bit about how a meeting should be done? Yeah. So the meetings are really important. And actually, uh, you know, one thing that I may frequently get hired to do is to come in and make an assessment of kind of how an organization is being managed right now. That's the front end, a lot, especially these more complex interventions, like I was talking about. And in an assessment, I'll do some one-on-one -on -one interviews and I'll talk to people, but really I get most of my information by watching the meetings. Uh, you know, effective meetings as a topic has sort of fallen out of vogue. And that is good because effective meetings as a topic is usually stuff like have an agenda, which yeah. is really important and it's in my book, but it's a little piece, right? Uh, but, but really, you know, if you look at the management, as I've just talked about it, which is this is the system of people who have control of the resources and have visibility into the goals, and they're constantly making adjustments and taking the next best step, then you start to realize, and, and I hate to tell you this, um, if you're a manager, but most of the work of management happens in meetings. Um, you know, once you're especially a level or two up, you're not touching the, the work anymore. Your, your job is to coordinate resources with fellow managers. So, so meetings are where it all happens. And, you know, in the North American sort of typical management model, meetings are largely ceremonial. They're, you know, sometimes it's, as you said, trying to look good in front of your boss. Sometimes it's trying to say as little as possible. Oftentimes <laughs> what I've seen is there's sort of this function of like, we have the story and the plan of what we're supposedly doing. And our job in the meeting is to make it look as much as possible like that is what is happening. And then we run around like crazy between the meetings, trying to actually get the work done and, and fix it so that the next time we have a meeting, we can give another good story, right? Yes. And, and that is really 
I mean, that is a drain on, on people. It's not just the, it, it feels like the meeting is bad, but actually that's not the meeting that's bad. That's that whole thing is, is a drain on people. And so what I'm saying is, you know, I want to see a meeting in which, you know, managers are not saying, so what happened? And they're not saying, Hey, how's it going? And they're not even saying, so how's it going to go? They're saying, so how's it going to go differently than we expected last time we checked, which was, you know, not that long ago, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so there's some implications to the kind of data people bring in. There's some implications to the structure of the meeting in terms of we want less statusing and we want more of a scenario where, where we pick a key issue in advance or two and somebody puts it on the table and says, here's what's happening. Here's my recommendation. And that takes a few minutes. And then the rest of the meeting or the rest of the conversation is spent discussing and acting on the recommendation. We want to skew meetings toward more action, right? So, so is it talk and listen, or is it decide and act? We want more decide and act. And we want information to be um, two things. First of all, accurate, right? So we don't want an overly positive bias or an overly negative bias. We want to make good decisions with good information. And then we want that information to be forward-looking. Again, we want to be looking and saying, you know, it's sort of like, you know, to switch metaphors, but I'm sailing a ship and I know where I'm trying to go and I can draw the line in my current course and does it get me there or not? And to the extent that it's different, that's a correction I need to make now. So I'm looking into the future and saying, what is the difference between the thing I'm trying to get to and the likely result of my current heading? And what adjustment should I make now? Um, if you go in a lot of management meetings, you don't hear a lot of that. You hear a lot of, here's how many we made this week. And, you know, things are going well, or, you know, everything's fine, boss. I don't need to talk, right? You hear a lot of that kind of stuff. And this yeah. is a different view on what should be going on in those meetings. It's more forward-looking, more decision-oriented, more collaborative, um, and, and it, it makes more um, useful action. Really. Definitely. I, I think for that kind of honesty to happen in a meeting, though, you need to kind of remove the toxic culture of, you know, politics and people kind of looking at them at their careers selfishly or, you know what I mean? Like kind of that siloing that happens where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to make myself look good. I'm going to make sure my team has all the resources that it needs and forget everybody else, you know, things like that. Um, so how do you reduce that? Or, you know, how do you make it so that people can focus on, okay, this is the reality of the situation. It's not what we wanted to hear, but here we are, you know, let's like, how do you kind of get over that impulse to just make yourself look better? You know, it's, I think it's both easier and more difficult than, than people realize. <laughs> uh, but, but the answer is, so I'll give you the short answer and the long answer. Okay. The short answer is if you're running a team of managers, um, you tell the team, we come together as a team every week in the staff or whatever you call it. And when we come together to produce my output goals, me, the boss, I have the set of output goals. I owe these to my boss in the broader organization. You all have subordinate goals to these. And so our job in this meeting is to produce these goals and to produce these results and outputs. And um, you all, I will personally view you all as successful or not based upon the aggregate completion of my goals. Um, that's a very different thing than most of what goes on in, in sort of the very individualistic Western model, you know, North American management, which is, you know, get me your results and it doesn't matter how, and I'll put them together because I'm the boss. Not at all. You just say, look, you know, I'm going to personally hold you all, you know, as successful or not based on this. Now people will say, well, the HR system doesn't support that. You know, we grade people individually. I have consulted with HR groups. We can fix that. But even if you can't, if you say to your employees, I personally view you as successful if this gets done and not successful if it doesn't, and I will act accordingly in the HR system, that's a big step, right? And, and it's a step many managers don't know to take. Um, it's powerful. The reason it's powerful is you have to go to the sort of, the, you know, the, the lizard brain, right? Like, like when I put, you know, if you're my boss, okay, so I work for Neha, you know, 
in my cognitive brain, I understand reporting relationships, org structure, right? The lizard brain is like, okay, it's me and then Niha, and then she has the food and the, and the survival, right? So it's like, yeah. I got to look good for Niha, right? And so as soon as you say, you look good by getting my stuff done in collaboration, like that doesn't make me a nicer person or, or less, you know, limbically driven or it just, it <laughs> makes me focus on the stuff you want me to focus on. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't do that, then it does become, it's very difficult to avoid it becoming a, a trade-off show. Um, the rest of that story is, you know, so now we're in a meeting and now one of us is saying, you know, so we all work for you. Let's say one of us is saying, Hey, there's this difference. And I think to fix it, I need some resources from my peer or whatever. And all you have to do is say, you know, okay, we're, well, we make that decision in the context of my Niha higher level goals. Right. So it's fine. Argue. It's a good argument. It's a debate we need to have. We don't know what's better, but, but I don't want to catch, you know, Ed versus Harry arguing over Ed's goals versus Harry's goals. That's crazy. Ed and Harry are going to argue over the best way toward my goals and, and I'll listen and I'll decide. And, and that really is the way you get out of silos because all of a sudden, once you, once you have that between Ed and Harry, right mm -hmm. now, the two of us working for you are worried about your goals. All of a sudden, like if I'm having trouble, Harry will not only offer me help, Harry will push help to me. Like, Hey Ed, you're not getting this. I don't want to fail. I'm going to send you some help. And so it changes the whole context of even what the, even what the arguments are about becomes like, no, I don't need help. Yes, you do. Okay. Well, I need a little help. I could just, it just changes the whole dynamic. Hugely. Yeah. I, I think that's a really modern way to look at it. I mean, I, it shouldn't be right. It makes a lot of sense to be like, okay, well, if I, you know, if this, these are my goals and then you work for me and then, you know, your goals are here. Your goals are within all of my goals. You're drawing the link teams. I see you doing I am. <laughs> I, I was, I'm, I'm going to put it up, you know, somewhere right here so everybody can see it. But <laughs> the link teams, I think is an amazing concept. Um, and it makes so much sense. You know, of course, everybody's goals are within, you know, the greater manager's goals. Um, but it is kind of a modern concept, you know, like I, I don't, so in an earlier, earlier interview, um, you were, you had talked about kind of like management models of the 1800s and we're all stuck in, you know, uh, management models from the industrial, you know, the industrial age basically where, uh, companies were started to create like railroads and stuff. And then we've all companies have just kind of stayed in those management models. Um, is there, can you just kind of give like a little quick, history lesson on how, you know, how have we gone from those industrial models of management to the kind of North American management model that you, you've mentioned a couple of times to this iterative management? Like, how does that evolve exactly? Well, I, I do want to say, I don't, I don't know what I said in the other interview, but, but I, I you know, it, it is true. It, so, so first of all, it is true, right? The org chart is a mid 1800s construct from railroad companies. Like, so think about how you build a railroad. A crew comes in and they kind of like pull out the trees and then a group comes in and they flatten the dirt. And then a group comes in and they put some bedding down or some rocks or whatever. I don't build railroads, but you know, some base. <laughs> and then a group right. comes in and lays some rails. Like the ties go first, the ties get set down, the rails go on top, right? So it's a very linear sequential process. Like you don't need collaboration between the roadbed guy and the rail guy. You need the roadbed guy to not screw it up so the rail guy can do his job and the specs are loose right it, it's it's there's there's a very wide spec of acceptability for the roadbed and as long as we're in that we're fine mm -hmm. right so it's it, the, the org chart makes a lot of sense where you go okay you know first guy's through second guy's through right that that structure you know the fact that all the major players in the hris space have um coded that structure into their organizational management cloud-based software is not great because yeah. we're not making railroads anymore, right? So, so, but I also want to say the, the iterative model that I'm describing, I've put new words around it, but, but this research goes back to, you know, post-World War II behavioral research and researchers 
I'm talking about the kind of behavioral research where a researcher followed you around with a clipboard and wrote down what you did every five minutes because that's how they did research, right? Yeah. So, so it was that research and it was into the question of, the, the question I want to say it was into was, what does management do that actually makes an organization run better? The truth is the question was, does management do anything that makes an organization run better? Because we aren't, we aren't sure, right? And so these, <laughs> these linked teams and these behaviors, they look different in different organizations, but the core that I'm talking about, it's been around since, you know, what is that, the 40s, the 50s? Like it's been around a long time. And, you know, so I don't exactly know like who first sort of figured this out. I think it can organically evolve. And certainly there are companies today where it has organically evolved, um, but also it's easy to get it wrong. And, and one of the really interesting things that I'm seeing, and I've noticed this in the last handful of years, is if you take an executive who works in what I would call an iterative company, and it is 20% of the companies, they're there, they're now doing well. Mm -hmm. And you take that person out and put him or her into a different company that's not running that way, um, he or she will try and fix it. And, and because it's like in the ether of the culture, he or she will grab onto the things that naturally that are visible and noticeable, like meeting rhythm. So you've got executives running around saying, we need meeting rhythm, goals, we need goals, right? If you have an executive coming to a company that was doing, from a company that was doing iterative management and trying to make the new company more iterative, and they implement regular meeting rhythm, and they implement linked goals, which are the two most visible pieces of iterative management, um, what they will create is we know this, about a 20% tax on the organization in terms of more meetings and more documentation. And unless you get the decision-making right, unless you get the team linkage right, and unless you get the frontline forecasts coming up and the other pieces, you won't get the launch. And, and I have met frustrated executives that when I've showed them this, they said, yes, that's the, that's the, I didn't know that was going on in the other company. It was just, we were just breathing it, you know, it was in the air. Uh, and so, so that is the, you know, the, the path from one to the other is systemic change and, and helping all the practices. Um, the good news is you can help them just a little. You don't have to help them all perfectly all at once, but if you help them all a little bit, you can you can kind of move that way. Right. Just one change would make life so much better for one step at a time. Right. Take exactly. the next best step. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Um, so okay, so you're talking about cultural change. Let's say I'm in an organization that is not part of that 20% of you know iterative companies. How do I become a a culture changer? Uh, first of all, what is a culture changer? Um, and then how do I become one of those people that comes in and then, you know, can change the, the ways that companies do things, especially in the face of friction, in the face of, you know, non-supportive management? How, like, how, how do I do that? Well, the to answer that question, so so you see the word culture changers. Actually, I, I'm glad you said that word because my my mission statement of my company is to create culture changers. So my idea is whether you watch a four minute video or you know listen or watch this this interview or come to our session that you'll leave able to go back to your company or your organization and make a culture change. And so I almost always find myself talking about what do you mean by a culture change. So the easy way to think about it is, and I'm I'm paraphrasing this from Shine from Sloan who invented the term. We think culture is kind of like us or those before us had some problems and, you know, however we figured it out, we figured out solutions to those problems and those solutions we now teach sort of subconsciously back and forth to each other as the way to behave and the way to act and the way to be. Um, it comes from sort of fundamental assumptions about how to survive and it leads all the way to these sort of artifacts of behavior, right? So, so what that means is it, to make a culture change, you know, it's sort of tempting to go, well, I'll just change Niha's assumptions about reality and then she'll change her behavior. It's like, that doesn't work because you don't know what they are. And I don't know what they are. And you don't want to talk about them with me. But what I can do is I can go, hey, Niha, here's a tool. Try this tool and it'll help your problem. And if it helps your problem, you'll use it. And if you use it, 
we just did the same thing today, right? You just solved a problem you have today. And so if we can give you tools, and, and this is where the kind of the management interventions come in, if I can give you some tools and get you using them in front of each other so that people notice the tool, have access to it, see that it works, then they'll kind of adopt it. And all that kind of helps, I'll do that. Um, what we're doing is we're changing the culture for tomorrow. So, so, and tomorrow doesn't have to be two years away. Tomorrow can be two months from now, but we're, we're creating a cycle. It's like an iterative cycle. We say, okay, well, that'll be, that'll become how we think about this. And, you know, sure enough, I drop into these companies a year later after we do this. And it's like, you know, it doesn't occur to any of the new people not to have a meeting in this way, because that's how we have meetings, mm -hmm. but, but you have to get there by putting a few pieces in and having it kind of grow there. You cannot get there by giving a really motivational, heartfelt talk. Um, <laughs> A lot of us wish that were possible, but it's not. Um, you have to kind of iterate there and, and increment there and, and, and let the culture grow itself. And, and if you understand that, you can be very targeted in how you, how you make change. So, so, you know, back to your question, what can you do? Well, I need to know who you are and what you do, but probably the answer is if you're managing any kind of a team, we can make some improvements in how you do that. Some of the stuff we've talked about already around making sure that they align to your goals, not theirs around making sure your meetings are forward-looking, around you know, not allowing people to debate subordinate goals versus each other, but to have the conversation about your goals. Mm -hmm. um, as you start to do those things and, and others, then you will start to run that little piece better. Now, will that change the whole organization? It might, um, it depends on where you are. If you're very high up, it'll change a little faster if you're low down, but, but at least if we can change your piece of it, that's the start you can make. And, and then if we can move that around up and laterally, you know, we, can, we can do it you know, systemically. Yeah. Do you find that if people see, I mean, these are all very, not common sense suggestions, but you know, they, once you see them, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, that this is the, this is a better way to do it. Do you find that people, when they see these kind of practices, they just adopt them, you know, kind of unconsciously, or is it, you know, it's kind of like, oh, that, that looks good. And then they, they kind of do it themselves. Like, you know, it, it depends. I mean, if I give you a simple little tool you can do yourself, you'll probably take it and use it. Uh, yeah. What, where it gets sort of, you know, the reason I get to have a job, I guess, and not just write a <laughs> book and be done is, you know, where it gets kind of touchy is that issue of like, who else is doing it this way, right? So if I, if I pull together, for example, an executive and their staff only, I give them a, a really compelling sort of set of tools, but they're all being pulled on by their people in a different way, then that's a force working against me, right? So, so instead, what we do in these intervention models is, you know, for example, a lot of times I'll work with three levels because I'm working with the kind of the patterns between them, right? So now all of a sudden, if I have the executive staff and they have, you know, not only is their boss sort of asking for this, but their teams are kind of providing pieces of it and, and so supporting it. Now it's that much easier for them to do it, right? So, so, and it doesn't feel like a big change, you know, cause we've all been to training classes where you go back and go, that was great. And you try and do it. And it's like, I can't get it to happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is how we fix it. So we either fix it through making sure in the training classes that we give small enough, manageable enough things to do that they're actually doable or we fix it in the, in the uh, consultation approach in the intervention approach by kind of working the system around it so that bigger changes are possible. And that's why I say, and I've said this many times, we can get there through training, it takes a little longer. Um, we can get there through intervention, it goes faster, it's yeah. heavier in terms of it's more expensive and, and more time for a shorter period of time. But, but like bang for buck wise, the amount of change you get is a lot faster because you can, you can make bigger changes faster and, and accumulate change faster. Mm-hmm. Well, I, so what do you think is the difference between change management and kind of what you're describing? Is there a difference um, between kind of what the, you know, the model that you're saying 
just explain that difference to me a little bit. Like what is iteration versus change management versus, you know, there's, Oh, well, you, I, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things to talk about. This was, this is, I think this was my favorite, like four paragraphs in the whole book. Um, <laughs> and I didn't figure it out until I'd written the whole book and used it a bunch of times um, in, in earlier forms, but the, we, we have a problem with language, right? So, so when I say management, um, you know, I feel like it's like the Inuit native population of Alaska, like they have, what is it, 50 words for snow or like the ancient Greeks had like six words for love, right? Like we have bad like vocabulary <laughs> management because I go management, you go, oh yeah, that's where you have an employee mm-hmm. um, or, or that's change management. You're talking about change management. So it's change management, right? But, but change management is a body of work around, I have a big group of people and I have to shepherd them through a complex change, a reorg, new market, big change in the organization's scope or direction, right? And so there's a whole thing about psychology of early adopters and late adopters and communication planning and executive sponsorship and um, all of this stuff that's really important if you're doing that kind of a big change. Um, I also like to talk about managing with a capital ING, which is as soon as you get a direct report, you've got to do managing with capital ING, you've got to set goals, you've got to model policy, you've got to help them deal with issues, you've got to help them develop, you've got to mentor and support, right? All that stuff, again, super important. I don't care if you're a CEO or a frontline manager, you have one direct report, you got to do that. Plenty of stuff is written about that and some really good stuff and it behooves you to learn it. What I'm talking about is what I call management with a capital mint, which is once you're in management, you are part of a group of people whose job it is to act collectively as the feedback system of the organization. That's not feedback like, how are you doing? That's like thermostat feedback. Like I was saying, like, like what course are we on? How does it compare to the course we want? And what adjustments should we make? You know, turn the AC off, it's cold enough, only more complex than that, right? So in management with a capital Mint, you are working collaboratively with your peers and often with your boss and with people also in the organization to constantly adjust resources and sometimes adjust goals um, based on new information and to take that next step we've been talking about. So the, the idea that you can do that through change management, and I have had clients who are doing management through change management, it's hugely taxing. Every time I need to make an adjustment because things have changed, I have to launch a campaign and have a poster and have an executive sponsor and have a communication plan, and it's overwhelming, right? If you get the management right, if you get to a situation where, oh, we're in the regular business of having these conversations, of making these adjustments, you know, it's, it's a very common thing for Ed and Harry to come to Neha's staff meeting and have a little debate about where the resources should go and then make a decision. And, and we all agree we'll do that. And we also all agree it might change again next week because we're just, we're just taking this step, right? Um, once that becomes kind of in the DNA and the culture of the organization, now you only need change management when there's a big change, like a big change, right? Which is right because change management is for big changes. And now you're managing, you know, setting goals and giving feedback and those kind of things. That gets a little easier too, because, well, now I know kind of how my work fits with the rest of the population and I know where I can get help and I know why it matters. And so now when we have our one-on-one and you're talking about my performance to goals and my collaborative skills and you're mentoring me to get better at giving these updates in meetings, there's a context for all that. Mm-hmm. So, so I think management with a capital mint is kind of been the missing ingredient in um, a lot of what people are reading and acting on in the role of having direct reports. And I think it's notably absent. I think without that, you end up with something a lot more siloed and a lot less efficient. And, and you've got people, well-meaning people running around doing their best to mentor people and support people and help them develop, help them grow. And at the same time, you know, the day-to-day is a slog because it's hard. It's just, it's hard to do well without that approach to, to you know, a more iterative approach. Definitely, definitely. So 
We, okay. Talking about big changes. Um, how, so 2020, I think the main theme of it has been, everything has changed and everybody's trying to scramble to figure out how to address the changes and things like that. So how does, how can managers use this iterative approach to deal with some of the bigger changes that are going on in the workplace? And I'm going to give you kind of two separate ones. So one is everybody's at home and everybody's virtual. Um, Mm. how, how should managers deal with that? And then the second big change that I think that we're going through kind of in the North American, you know, management landscape is this issue of like racial justice and kind of more social dynamics that are changing or, you know, people are trying to change actively. So how, how do we use these iterative approaches to kind of, I don't know, shepherd the changes or um, in the, in the example of work from home, you know, managers have to kind of do extra things to support their employees and stuff. And then with racial justice, it's like, okay, you want to well, let's, let's just take it one thing at a time. Let's let's just do work from home that's for big, now. That's a big question. Yeah, that's a lot. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's start with this. Let's start okay. with the just the general thing about change, right? So mm-hmm. so the book came out in 2018. I've been doing this for years before that. Um, and I've been saying for a long time, like you make a decision, you take an action. And if everything changes tomorrow, it's okay. You're ready to take the next action tomorrow. Um, and that was metaphorical until 2020. And then everything started changing tomorrow, right? It's like, oh, I wake up and now there's a new rule or new law or new population or new percent people can be in the office or whatever. And so I think from my perspective, the need for this kind of management has just grown immensely in 2020, right? If you don't have a management system and a a sort of a routine, you want to call it a routine, an operating system, a culture, whatever word you want to use, if you don't have kind of baked into your regular rhythm of life, this idea that we get together and go, what's different? What's changed? How does that affect our course? What do we need to adjust? Then you're going to struggle mightily in, in this kind of context because you're going to be working on a model that's less like that and more like, let's guess what's going to happen for the year and make a plan for it. And that's just not possible right now. Right. So, so that's kind of the, the, the high level. Um, Now you talked about virtual environment and social justice, right? So, Mm -hmm. so let me take those one at a time. So let me just, um, one, I guess my, I use those two examples because work from home is, it's kind of like a reactive thing. We're reacting to this. Now everybody's at home. And then I feel like social justice or let's say, you know, incorporating more diversity in the workplace. Those are, it's a proactive kind of goal, right? Like we're, we're working towards it. So, you know, that, that, that's the kind of context that I'm asking that in. Okay. Well, and, and we, we should maybe have a little slight argument about whether work from home is reactive or not, because there are plenty of clients that have been working from home for a long time and, and it works true. better. Um, and, but certainly some people got thrown into it kind of, you know, right. and screaming, right? So <laughs> the general thing that I can say, I think that the most, the most sort of useful thing I can say about work from home, and it was said to me by a client and, and ever since he said it to me, I was like, yeah, absolutely everywhere is it drives the need for discipline, right? You can correct for like a host of bad meeting behaviors, for example, if we're all in the same room and then when the meeting officially ends, we hang out and talk to each other for a while, right? Mm-hmm. That same bad meeting on a Zoom and then someone clicks the red button when the meeting's over and all of the real useful information transfer that was gonna happen doesn't happen, right? So, so the need for discipline in the meetings in terms of what we're gonna talk about and how they work and those kind of things, the need for discipline, even in one-on-one conversations, you know, having an objective for the conversation and having a, having a broader picture of my goals so that I kind of know why I'm having the conversations, like all of that discipline has gone up. Now, in terms of what managers should specifically do, um, because people are more remote, you know, I think that's going to be a pretty variable kind of answer based on a lot of factors, like how much remote work was there before, right? And, and that's why I sort of advocate for this, like, you know, what you should do is 
get together a special meeting or task force, what I would call it. And, and the, the point of the task force is here's the goals we're working toward. And here's what we think are the most important differences now that work from home has come in the way that it has. And for the time period, we think we have it for what adjustments do we need to make? And, and, you know, it's a terrible answer, but my advice is figure it out in groups through intelligent decision-making and figure it out for you. Cause it's different for you than it is for me or for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's like sort of training on how to do better virtual meetings, those kind of things. And some of that might be useful, but I feel like, you know, if you're not making, if, if the need isn't driven from inside the organization saying, these are the things we need to get better at or adjust or change, um, then I don't know how that can go that well um, because it's, it's going to be sort of, yeah, I mean, it is better to have an agenda than not. Um, it is better to have your camera on. It's better to not have your, you know, your camera too low or too high. Like all that stuff is fine. But, but what you really need to be talking about is how does this affect your goals, right? Like what stuff couldn't be done in the office or could be done in the office, those kind of things. Right. Um, so I think that's my answer for the, for the virtual environment. Um, okay. as, as far as the social justice or racial justice or inclusion and diversity, um, you know, I, I have never pretended to position this content as being diversity training. Um, but I have had multiple clients give me feedback that this meshes very well with that. And the reason is, you know, when you get back to that linked teams view and you say, okay, now we've got Ed and Harry and two other guys and two other women, whatever, working for, working for Neha, right? And so we're all, each of us carries a subordinate set of goals relative to Neha's goals. And each of us is responsible for our goals, but jointly responsible for Neha's goals. And so the staff meetings where we come together and we say, based on my goals, here's what I'm doing, this is what I see coming, these are the problems. And how do we make those trade-offs in the context of Neha's goals, right? And so you have a scenario where, Everyone on this team has very different perspectives because I'm working on sales and Harry's working on, I don't know, production, right? Let's say. And so, so people are different kind of functionally. They're different, you know, ethnically. They're different by gender. They're different in all the ways they're different. And, and the system is basically saying, look, we don't layer on an idea of listening to each other because it's like a motherhood and apple pie thing. Listening to each other is fundamental to how we run this company because we can't make good decisions if we're not, A, being honest and transparent, and B, listening to each other. And so what we start to see in these more iterative organizations is a lot more sort of curiosity and a lot more, you know, tell me more about how you see that because I don't see it that way. But if I'm wrong, I wanna make sure I understand what you're seeing, right? So because we're not gonna make the best decision, me and Harry, for Nihau's goals, and we're gonna both suffer if we don't. So that drive to the higher level decision and that lateral push of help that I was talking about before, Mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden, you know, if we have, one person who's a minority and, and three that aren't, um, you know, everyone's treated equally in the eyes of, hey, if anybody fails, we all fail. Like, how do I help you? Right mm-hmm. now, now, is there another layer under that of cultural differences, gender differences, you know, ethnicity differences? Absolutely. And again, I don't, I don't work in that space, and I don't mean to say that isn't useful. It's absolutely useful, but I think it's it, there's also no substitute for you know a workplace world in which we're already looking to include everybody and, and hear from everybody and help everybody and support everybody because everybody sits there and goes, I see how what I'm doing matters to the bigger whole. And, yeah. and I see how what you're doing matters to the bigger whole. I'm going to help you if you need it. You're going to help me if I need it. Um, and we're going to do the best we can to get this done. I think if you get that in place, then again, those tools around, you know, better understanding of, of racial justice and diversity and inclusion, those kind of things, they start to have a lot more context. Starts mm-hmm. to feel like, oh yeah, I'm glad I know that because I need I need that. That will help me, um, and and it um, it it makes a difference. So just a f- quick follow up question on on that. So does that mean that, let's say, does that mean that those kinds of goals of like, okay, we need to have more diversity in the company. Does that need to come from the top level? 
down. I mean, we talk about linked teams, right? So if my small team, that's not like, uh, does it have to be a goal of the whole company for me to kind of, you know, uh, adopt that as my own goal or, um, does that make like, let's, does like diversity and inclusion need to be a company-wide value for it to be adopted through the whole, you know, like kind of filter down or, you know, how does it become like a bottom-up kind of a, a process? Well, that's a hard question because you're not asking me should it, you're asking me does it need to, right? So yeah, so, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I'm all, wondering how does that happen? I mean, if we talk about, okay, uh, you know, system, how do we get a system to change? Um, when the, let's say the top of it is disinclined, you know, like it, it's not incentivized for diversity and inclusion, you know, what, I mean, that's the theory, right? So, but, you know, and it's like, so then how does that change happen if, um, I don't know, the, if, the, if the whole company doesn't have that as a value, then- You're asking me a version of a question that I get asked a lot and in a very <laughs> yeah. way, but you're, the question you're asking me is how do I get my bosses to figure out what, what's up? Right? Yeah, um, exactly. So, you know, my answer is always, I don't know, because I don't know uh -huh. your bosses, but like, what can you do? Right. Uh -huh. So, so what can you do? I mean, you know, you can leave, you can make your, if you're a senior manager, you can run your group differently. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a lot individuals can do. And I think, you know, I, I do appreciate that certainly we start talking about values, company-wide values. You know, it's possible you could find yourself in a company where you go, these values are not consistent with mine. And if they're too inconsistent, you should leave. Um, or you could go talk to your executive and say, I'm going to leave, but I thought you should know this. I mean, these are all choices you have. I think once you're ready to leave, it's not too hard to talk to the executive anymore because, you know, you're kind of there, right? So, so I don't mean to say that's always the answer, but, but I think to my way of thinking is, you know, when someone comes to me and says a version of how do we use your tools to get other people to do stuff, I say, don't do that use my tools to get you to do stuff because here you are with me and we're talking. So why don't we figure out what you can do? And then why don't we see the impact that has? And then you can make a decision. You know, you're free to leave, you're free to stay, you're free to escalate, you're free to do all these things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, that's necessary maybe, but, but I, I really don't love, you know, sitting around talking about how we're going to get so-and-so to do something because I don't know so-and-so and so-and-so is not here. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what so-and-so is facing or anything like that. So I would yeah. say, you know, use the tools at whatever level you're at. And, and again, you know, sometimes making the environment more conducive, although it doesn't seem like it's directly addressing the issue. And, and I don't mean to say the issue isn't urgent, but, but making the environment more conducive actually helps with the issue as well. And, and that may be the case or not. I don't know because I'm not in your company. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's, that's extremely practical. And I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, you know, practical solutions. And I think your whole book is just full of practical solutions. Um, yep. Iterate, uh, check out, check out his book, everybody. It's an amazing, the tone is so conversational. I really feel like you were just talking to me while I was reading this. Um, so it, it, it was really great. And as a person who doesn't appreciate a lot of nonfiction, I really, really love this book. Um, so, um, so thank you so much, Ed. I appreciated having you on the show so much. I feel like I learned a lot. We covered a lot of really diverse topics um, and uh, we hope to talk to you again. Um, is there anything that you wanna leave to the audience? Um, that you want to, you want to plug anything or, you know, just last word of advice for everybody. Well, to... I could plug, you know, I should plug the website. So if you go to iteratenow.com, um, you'll find the model, you'll find trailers and videos. You'll find the story of Alice, the story of walking to your car, a bunch of videos on the homepage at the moment. It won't be there that much longer, but at the moment, um, and probably for the next couple of months, there's a button that says COVID-19 help. So normally if you buy the book, 
you get access to even more videos and an assessment tool. Um, if you hit the COVID-19 help button and follow those instructions, you get access to all the stuff behind the firewall without buying the book. So I just saved you a, little, a few dollars. I still think you should buy the book. You still think you should buy the book, but you should buy the book. To, <laughs> hit the button. Um, and so you can get some resources there. So I think that's worth saying. Um, I guess the only other thing I would say is, um, and this may apply more toward people that think in terms of middle and senior groups, but, but I have often seen it that there's been a person who is sort of considered the problem person on the staff. And, you know, we're going to sort of throw coaching at that person and we're going to throw a performance intervention plan at that person. And that person's not a team player, but maybe that person is also valuable in some other way. And so we're sort of tolerating that person. And, um, you know, in the North American kind of individualistic thing, it's all that person's fault and we got to fix him or fix her, right? <laughs> um, what I've seen is when we get the patterns of behavior right in the group, a lot of times that person becomes one of the biggest supporters because what that person was really trying to do is get stuff done in the only way they knew how that kind of ground gears against the other people, but we had no clear norms. We had no clear process. And so, you know, there was a lot of conflict there. And so, you know, I don't know if you remember the, the fundamental attribution error, the thing about, you know, people tend to blame the individual instead of the surroundings. So you put them in a factory and people are making stuff and you turn the lights off and they make bad stuff. And watchers will say, oh, the person's bad at that. It's like, no, it's the system, right? The environment. <laughs> yeah. um, that plays out, I see, in management teams. And I think, so I think you can do a lot of good getting the, the management correct, even up to and including solving what you may think are individual personality issues or individual sort of, you know, difficulties between people. Um, and, and some of that goes away. And I've seen a lot of it go away when, when you get the sort of the system right. So I think that's worth thinking about as well. So instead of focusing on the individual, focus on the system, and then a good system will make a person better. Well, usually, yeah. yeah. Or, or at the very least, the person will say, I don't want to do this anymore, and they'll leave, which is yeah. also okay. But, <laughs> but generally speaking, they get better. They do, yeah. Most, most people are trying to do well, and they're trying to do right. And, and the few percent that aren't, you want to identify those. But, but mostly, the conflict we have is because we haven't, you know, we haven't figured out how yet. So if we help people figure that out, it's better. Awesome. Well, if you have a problem child on your team and, or if you think that there's some problem, please talk to Ed. Um, how, how can people get in touch with you if they want to, if they need help? Uh, like I said, iteratenow.com is the book website. You can also get me at groupharmonics.com. That's my company. Um, and you can email me and please do. It's just ed at groupharmonics.com. Uh, or if you hit either of those websites, you'll find ways to get to me that way too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Um, and stay tuned, everybody. We're going to be releasing episodes once a week. Uh, we're going to have other really great guests on. Um, so, and if you want to be a part of the show, just go ahead and email me at uh, aceatl2020 at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, stay safe, everybody. Uh, have a good one. And I'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks, Nia. <laughs>